0: Chapter 18 of The Alaskan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter 18. It seemed to Alan that in instant a sudden change had come over the world. There was silence in the cabin, except for the breath which came like a sob to the girl's lips as she turned to the window, and looked out into the blaze of golden sunlight that filled the tundra. He heard Tautuk's voice calling to Keok away over near the reindeer corral and he heard clearly Keok's merry laughter as she answered him. A gray-cheeked thrush flew up to the roof of Sokwenna's cabin, and began to sing. It was as if these things had come as a message to both of them, relieving attention and significant of the beauty and glory and undying hope of life. "'Mary Standish turned from the window with shining eyes. "'Every day the thrush comes and sings on our cabin roof,' she said. "'It is possibly because you are here,' he replied. "'She regarded him seriously. "'I have thought of that, you know. "'I have faith in a great many unbelievable things.' I can think of nothing more beautiful than the spirit that lives in the heart of a bird. I am sure, if I were dying, I would like to have a bird singing near me. Hopelessness cannot be so deep that bird-song will not reach it. He nodded, trying to answer in that way. He felt uncomfortable. She closed the door which he had left partly open— "'and made a little gesture for him to resume the chair "'which he had left a few moments before. "'She seated herself first and smiled at him wistfully, "'half regretfully, as she said, "'I have been very foolish. "'What I am going to tell you now "'I should have told you aboard the Nome. "'But I was afraid. "'Now I am not afraid, but ashamed.' "'terribly ashamed to let you know the truth. And yet I'm not sorry it happened so, because otherwise I would not have come up here, and all this your world, your people, and you have meant a great deal to me. You will understand when I have made my confession. No, I don't want that,' he protested almost roughly. "'I don't want you to put it that way.' if I can help you, and if you wish to tell me as a friend, that's different. I don't want a confession, which would imply that I have no faith in you.' "'And you have faith in me?' "'Yes. So much that the sun will darken, and birdsong never seem the same, if I lose you again, as I thought I had lost you from the ship.' "'Oh, you mean that?' The words came from her in a strange, tense little cry— and he seemed to see only her eyes as he looked at her face, pale as the petals of the tundra daisies behind her. With the thrill of what he had dared to say, tugging at his heart, he wondered why she was so white. You mean that, her lips repeated slowly, after all that has happened, even after that part of a letter which Stampede brought to you last night— he was surprised. How had she discovered what he thought was a secret between himself and Stampede? His mind leaped to a conclusion, and she saw it written in his face. No, it wasn't Stampede, she said. He didn't tell me. It just happened. And after this letter, you still believe in me? I must. I should be unhappy if I did not and I am most perversely hoping for happiness. I have told myself that what I saw over John Graham's signature was a lie. It wasn't that quite, but it didn't refer to you or to me. It was part of a letter written to Rosland. He sent me some books while I was on the ship, and inadvertently left a page of this letter in one of them as a marker. It was really quite unimportant, when one read the whole of it. The other half of the page is in the toe of the slipper, which you did not return to Ellen McCormick. You know that is the conventional thing for a woman to do, to use paper for padding in a soft-toed slipper. He wanted to shout, he wanted to throw up his arms and laugh, as Tautok and amok and a score of others had laughed, to the beat of the Tom-Toms last night not because he was amused, but out of sheer happiness. But Mary Standish's voice continuing on its quiet and a matter-of-fact way, held him speechless, though she could not fail to see the effect upon him of this simple explanation of the presence of Graham's letter. I was in Navadlock's room, when I saw Stampede pick up the wad of paper from the floor, she was saying— I was looking at the slipper a few minutes before, regretting that you had left its mate in my cabin on the ship, and the paper must have dropped then. I saw Stampede read it, and the shock that came in his face. Then he placed it on the table and went out. I hurried to see what he had found, and had scarcely read the few words when I heard him returning. I returned the paper where he had laid it, hid myself in Nawadluk's room and saw Stampede when he carried it to you. I don't know why I allowed it to be done. I had no reason. Maybe it was just intuition, and maybe it was because just in that hour I so hated myself that I wanted someone to flame me alive, and I thought that what Stampede had found would make you do it. And I deserve it. I deserve nothing better at your hands.' But it isn't true, he protested. The letter was to Rosland. There was no responsive gladness in her eyes. Better that it were true, and all that is true, were false, she said in a quiet, hopeless voice. I would almost give my life to be no more than what those words implied, dishonest, a spy, a criminal of a sort. Almost any alternative would I accept in place of what I actually am. Do you begin to understand? I am afraid I cannot. Even as he persisted in denial, the pain which had grown like velveted dew in her eyes clutched at his heart, and he felt dread of what lay behind it. I understand only that I am glad you are here more glad than yesterday, or this morning, or an hour ago. She bowed her head, so that the bright light of day made a radiance of rich color in her hair, and he saw the sudden tremble of the shining lashes that lay against her cheeks, and then, quickly, she caught her breath, and her hands grew steady in her lap. "'Would you mind if I asked you first to tell me your story of John Graham?' she spoke softly. "'I know it a little, but I think it would make everything easier if I could hear it from you now.' "'He stood up and looked down upon her, where she sat, with the light playing in her hair. "'And then he moved to the window and back, and she had not changed her position.' but was waiting for him to speak she raised her eyes and the question her lips had formed was glowing in them as clearly as if she had voiced it again in words a desire rose in him to speak to her as he had never spoken to another human being and to reveal for her and for her alone the thing that had harboured itself in his soul for many years looking up at him waiting partial understanding softening her sweet face, a dusky glow in her eyes. She was so beautiful that he cried out softly, and then laughed in a strange, repressed sort of way, as he half held out his arms toward her. "'I think I know how my father must have loved my mother,' he said. "'But I can't make you feel it. I can't hope for that.' She died when I was so young that she remained only as a beautiful dream for me. But for my father, she never died, and as I grew older, she became more and more alive for me, so that in our journeys we would talk about her, as if she were waiting for us back home, and would welcome us when we returned." and never could my father remain away from the place where she was buried very long at a time. He called it home, that little cup at the foot of the mountain, with the waterfall singing in summer, and a paradise of birds and flowers keeping her company, and all the great wild world she loved about her. There was the cabin, too, the little cabin where I was born, with its back to the big mountain— and filled with the handiwork of my mother, as she had left it when she died. And my father, too, used to laugh and sing there. He had a clear voice that would roll halfway up the mountain. And as I grew older, the miracle at times stirred me with a strange fear, so real to my father did my dead mother seem when he was home. But you look frightened, Miss Standish oh it may seem weird and ghostly now but it was true so true that i have lain awake nights thinking of it and wishing that it had never been so then you have wished a great sin said the girl in a voice that seemed scarcely to whisper between her parted lips i hope someone will feel toward me some day like that but it was this which brought the tragedy the thing you have asked me to tell you about he said unclenching his hands slowly and then tightening them again until the blood ebbed from their veins interests were coming in the tentacles of power and greed were reaching out encroaching steadily a little nearer to our cup at the foot of the mountain but my father did not dream of what might happen It came in the spring of the year he took me on my first trip to the States, when I was eighteen. We were gone five months, and they were five months of hell for him. Day and night he grieved for my mother and the little home under the mountain. And when at last we came back, he turned again to the window, but he did not see the golden sun of the tundra, or hear Tauta calling from the corral. When we came back, he repeated in a cold, hard voice, a construction camp of a hundred men had invaded my father's little paradise. The cabin was gone. A channel had been cut from the waterfall, and this channel ran where my mother's grave had been. They had treated it with that same desecration, with which they have destroyed ten thousand Indian graves since then. Her bones were scattered in the sand and mud, and from the moment my father saw what had happened, never another sun rose in the heavens for him. His heart had died, yet he went on living for a time. Mary Standish had bowed her face in her hands. He saw the tremor of her slim shoulders, and when he came back and she looked up at him— It was as if he beheld the pallid beauty of one of the white tundra flowers. And uh, the man who committed that crime was John Graham, she said, in the strangely passionless voice of one who knew what his answer would be. Yes, John Graham. He was there representing big interests in the States— The foreman had objected to what happened, many of the men had protested, a few of them who knew my father had thrown up their work rather than be partners to that crime. But Graham had the legal power. They say he laughed as if he thought it a great joke that a cabin and a grave should be considered obstacles in his way. And he laughed when my father and I went to see him, yes, laughed— in that noiseless, oily, inside way of his, as you might think of a snake laughing. We found him among the men. My God, you don't know how I hated him. Big, loose, powerful, dangling the watch-fob that hung over his vest, and looking at my father in that way, as he told him what a fool he was, to think a worthless grave should interfere with his work. I WANTED TO KILL HIM, BUT MY FATHER PUT A HAND ON MY SHOULDER, A QUIET, STEADY HAND, AND SAID, IT IS MY DUTY, Alan, MY DUTY. AND THEN IT HAPPENED. MY FATHER WAS OLDER, MUCH OLDER THAN GRAHAM, BUT GOD PUT SUCH STRENGTH IN HIM THAT DAY AS I HAD NEVER SEEN BEFORE, AND WITH HIS NAKED HANDS, he would have killed the brute if I had not unlocked them with my own. Before all his men, Graham became a mass of helpless pulp, and from the ground, with the last of the breath that was in him, he cursed my father, and he cursed me. He said that all the days of his life he would follow us until we paid a thousand times for what we had done. And then my father dragged him, as he would have dragged a rat to the edge of a piece of bush, and there he tore his clothes from him until the brute was naked, and in that nakedness he scourged him with whips until his arms were weak, and John Graham was unconscious, and like a great hulk of raw beef. When it was over, we went into the mountains." During the terrible recital, Mary Standish had not looked away from him, and now her hands were clenched like his own, and her eyes and face were aflame, as if she wanted to leap up and strike at something unseen between them. And after that, Alan, after that—she did not know that she had spoken his name, and he, hearing it, scarcely understood— "'John Graham kept his promise,' he answered grimly. "'The influence and money behind him haunted us wherever we went. "'My father had been successful, but one after another the properties in which he was interested were made worthless. "'A successful mine in which he was most heavily interested was allowed to become abandoned. "'A hotel, which he partly owned in Dawson, was bankrupted. "'One after another things happened.' and after each happening my father would receive a polite note of regret from graham written as if the word actually came from a friend but my father cared little for money losses now his heart was drying up and his life ebbing away for the little cabin and the grave that were gone from the foot of the mountain it went on this way for three years and then one morning my father was found on the beach at nome dead. Dead? Alan heard only the gasping breath in which the word came from Mary Standish, for he was facing the window, looking steadily away from her. Yes, murdered. I know it was the work of John Graham. He didn't do it personally, but it was his money that accomplished the end. Of course, nothing ever came of it— I won't tell you how his influence and power have dodged me, how they destroyed the first herd of reindeer I had, and how they filled the newspapers with laughter and lies about me when I was down in the States last winter, in an effort to make your people see a little something of the truth about Alaska. I am waiting. I know the day is coming when I shall have John Graham, as my father had him, under our mountain twenty years ago. He must be fifty now, but that won't save him when the time comes. No one will loosen my hands as I loosen my father's, and all Alaska will rejoice, for his power and his money have become twin monsters that are destroying Alaska, just as he destroyed the life of my father." unless he dies and his money-power ends, he will make of this great land nothing more than a shell, out of which he and his kind have taken all the meat. And the hour of deadliest danger is now upon us. He looked at Mary Standish, and it was as if death had come to her, where she sat. She seemed not to breathe, and her face was so white it frightened him. And then— Slowly she turned her eyes upon him, and never had he seen such living pools of torture and of horror. He was amazed at the quietness of her voice when she began to speak, and startled by the almost deadly coldness of it. I think you can understand now why I leaped into the sea. Why, I wanted the world to think I was dead, and why I have feared to tell you the truth, she said. I am John Graham's wife. End of chapter 18 of The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood Read by Lars Rolander